Welcome to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden, your host. So looking forward to this one. Trying to answer some of the dang questions everybody has these days. What the heck is wrong with quail? We got somebody who can offer up a few answers, some suggestions, and hopefully a few hunting tips for the folks who are still out there chasing Bob Whites. He knows his stuff. He's from Quail Forever. His name is Tim Korn, and he is uh, one of the gurus in that world. So that's the gist of most of the Upland Nation podcast this week. Of course, we got something for everybody. We'll talk about your training goals, and maybe those will become suggestions for other listeners as well. We'll take a look at an alternative pheasant hunting destination. And a um, question this week that I will answer on some alternative sources if you're shopping for a puppy. It's that time of year, and uh, you know, if you're not this year, Maybe next year, everybody's kind of entertaining that. Sometimes it's a long process around here. It's a three or four year process of negotiation and then fitting that new dog into the kind of the string in the right place chronologically. You too? Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes you're lucky. That all prompted by a, a visit I just had with a, a friend from another dog club a long while back and we're getting back together. Hey, we're going to go fishing. Uh, hopefully real soon. But uh, while we were in the backyard having a beer or two, um, his new three-month-old short hair was having a great time with his three-year-old short hair. It was fun to watch, and I got the itch again. So, honey, watch out. Around here, it's all a three-and-a-half-year-old wire hair and keeping him in shape and working on steadiness to wing shot and fall. Flick is doing pretty good at that. It's already warm enough around here that we're starting our days early, crack of dawn early, so that we can get in enough miles. It's a little bit tough for, uh, I'm not a night owl, I'm not a morning person. I'm pretty good for that sweet spot between 10 and about 2. But for the dog and for the sport, I'm getting up a lot earlier than usual. <laughs> Anyone else doing the same thing? If, man, if you're in the Southwest, you're, you've been up against it for a while. Um, even the Midwest, upper Midwest, it's uh, the humidity. It's not the heat, you know, as they say. Another thing I've just finished, I know it'll change, but you got to start somewhere. You know, um, like the Cheshire Cat said, if you don't know where you're going, any, any road will take you there. Well, I've got the road at least graded and graveled uh, we haven't put the pavement on yet but um laid out a whole season's worth of hunting trips you know you put it in early you get it on the kitchen calendar and all of a sudden it's better than um yeah i don't know better than a written contract in some relationships we'll see i'm uh, eagerly awaiting my spouse issued hall pass and we'll keep you posted there. Lots of Western chucker hunting uh, on the agenda, but some other things as well, uh, including Montana. Anybody else headed that way? Let's get in touch. I'm headed for Lewistown and maybe the Charles Russell Refuge. Uh, glad to trade some notes with you. So ring me or drop me a note or uh, talk to me through the Facebook pages. Uh, all of the above. And speaking of talking and sharing, uh, let's see here. Let's um, let's go to okay. Let's go to the Facebook pages, including the Wing Shooting USA Facebook page. Uh, I asked a question that <laughs> uh, prompted some more thought on my part, and maybe it'll do the same for you. I asked what your training goal was for the summer and got some fascinating responses there. Let's share some of those and maybe maybe they'll uh, inspire or motivate you as well. Mike Harris says he's aiming for a prize one utility in August. That's in the NAVDA testing system. And then whew, the two-day German VGP test in August as well. Man, that's going to be a big month for everybody over there. Good luck on that. And uh, keep us posted, Mike. Erica and Mike Carr are going fly fishing. <laughs> they say their GSPs naturally point back and retrieve. Hey, 
Where can I find a couple of those, but with a beard and eyebrows? Dave DeSmither is keeping everybody in shape. You know, that is number one. Uh, and Paul Finsner is working on a natural ability test and rehabilitating, rehabilitating Sadie. She's got a broken foot. Nick Spurlock, thank you. That is one beautiful Brock Daverne, uh poised, continental tail, poised in a field that uh, may as well be bracken in the English moors. That's what it looks like, except for those big conifers in the background in the mountain range. He's working on building confidence in his new Brock and extending the range. You know, that's an interesting challenge with a lot of those old French breeds. I've seen it before, hunted with three or four four of those breeds and yeah nick i know exactly what you mean uh, but you know you can probably extend a, a range better easier than you can probably shorten a range all right and uh chris wright says they're working on being more comfortable with gunfire and water retrieves big setback in the water so uh we're working through it good luck on that chris and then finally Nathan Meek says, overcome retrieving issues. The pup was spurred by a rooster and now is hesitant at times to pick up birds. I, yeah, that is, a, that is going to be an interesting one. Good luck to you. And, oh, I just got to shout out one more time to Nick Spurlock. Man, you are a glutton for punishment, Nick. 12-week old, uh, three devils, uh, German wire-haired pointer. Yeah. So, oh, that's right. We're, we're like distant cousins nick as a result of that great looking dog of course uh lots of white on the front end uh, sitting in the sitting in the passenger seat riding shotgun already but that's the way three doubles dogs do it you know they if they could if they could fasten their seat belt they'd get behind the wheel good luck to you nick you have got um all three of your hands full there you know, the Upland Nation podcast is brought to you in part by Sage and Breaker Gun Care Products. They're crafted at the highest caliber, and man, are they handy. I've got just about one of everything that Fred Bohm makes and distributes. The things that are always in my truck vault are the CLP, that's the cleaning, lubrication, and, um, and um, what, what is the pe- protection CLP cleaning lubrication and protection it's a spray on it's you know we all have one of those this one has some interesting aspects to it including making your gun a little bit less magnetic I know that sounds wacky but what it does is it means that less dust less dirt less of that stuff that that is attracted by static electricity ends up on your barrel in your action etc etc so take a look Get on the mailing list at sageandbreaker.com. And if you're looking for lightly used pro-level gear at entry-level prices, man, we are seeing a rush on electric collars, GPS collars, and bird launchers. If you've got a bird launcher you're not using, why don't you sell it at uplandnationdeals.com. Lots of stuff like that in demand right now. And if you're looking for something in that world and you don't want to pay full retail for a brand new version of it, this is a great way to do it. It's all guaranteed. You decide whether when it arrives, you like it or not. Everybody wins. You're helping out a fellow hunter. UplandNationDeals.com. Yeah, so enough talk about that stuff. Let's get down to the nitty-gritty. You know, that audit, that that word, those words fit perfectly when we talk about quail, doesn't it? Nitty-gritty. Tim Corrin is here from Quail Forever to talk about just that. And and Tim, uh, number one, welcome to the Upland Nation podcast. How you doing? Glad to be here. Good. And I'm glad to have you. you know, this is a pressing question that we, uh, you know, we we deal with all the time. And 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 I apologize because all of this is, I mean, you live, breathe, and eat this stuff. But for a lot of us, we don't get the the important aspects of the whole quail situation. So let's start with your whole backstory and how you ended up where you are, and then uh, conclude that aspect, this that chapter with. What the heck you're doing these days? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I grew up in a town in southern Illinois. 
uh, called Shelbyville, Illinois, and a uh, big lake there, a lot of Corps of Engineer property, and um, farm and factory town, uh, really heavy agriculture, kind of south central Illinois, and, you know, I, I, I grew up there, and my friends lived out in the country at school. I lived in town, but um, I would ride the bus home with my friends on, on Fridays, and back then I would pack my single-shot 410 shotgun that broke down in my backpack. It was everybody knew it. Principal knew it. Teacher knew it. The bus driver knew it, and it was okay back then, you know, because they understood that, you know, when we rode the bus home on Friday, that was going to be in there because I was going to stay with my buddies, and we were going to chase rabbits and quail all weekend. And um, grew up doing that and loving it. You know, bought that gun with my paper route money. I made a dollar a day, and I saved up. And my mom, mom bought that 410 for me, and um, still have it today. Um, wow! And uh, you know, it uh, grew up that way, and just grew up loving quail, loving bird dogs, loving beetle dogs. You know, um, just quail and rabbits were the thing. And so when I I went to college, I got a bachelor of science degree from Eastern Illinois University, and um, I did an internship. Uh, down at Land Between the Lakes in Kentucky and Tennessee, and uh, just loved it down there. It was beautiful, you know, I was there for about three months of that internship, and when I completed that, they had a wildlife apprenticeship program. Uh, you become a an apprentice for the Forest Service. It was a two-year program, and they gave you housing and room and board, and right there on site, you know, on the Forest Service property was all included, and I signed up and did that, and uh, was just loving, you know, and I was about to finish that up, and my, my wife came, I met my wife, uh, she came down from the University of Wisconsin to, to be an intern, and um, I chased her back to Wisconsin and got a job as a wildlife technician with the uh, Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources, and I was a grassland restoration assistant um, up at Horicon Marsh, and I was a wildlife technician on the Rock River down by Janesville. I'd work on both positions concurrently, three days, one one place and two at the other and would rotate each week and was kind of living the dream was just you know had the the best of both worlds and was working for the dnr and was doing great and then they uh they discovered chronic wasting disease in their in their deer herd oh boy um, yeah and it you know and it was just kind of bad for everything It, it sucked the budget out of everything that i was doing for my job and then in turn all the wildlife people had to go and and start and start uh, calling the deer herd. Um, they they adapted a eradication zone, and we were shooting deer and burning them every day. Wow. And, and it was just, because at that time, landfills were afraid to take them. People were afraid to eat them. It was, they were developing a testing protocol, and it's just, um, I, did, I lasted about eight months doing that. And it just, it was just too much, honestly. And, um, you know, I was, I had my feelers out. I was looking after after eight months of that. And I had been volunteering with a Pheasants Forever chapter on the weekends and then doing burning and some of the things I, I love to do, you know, for what my job used to be before CWD. And and they told me that uh, somebody within the organization told me that they were going to start hiring wildlife habitat specialists. They were going to develop this new program and, and uh, hire four people to do it. And I put my name in the hat and got an interview. And I remember my, my boss at the time, he was the director of field operations, Rick Young. He said, he sat down with me at a Perkins there in Madison, Wisconsin. He said, he started telling me all about Pheasants Forever and everything they did and everything they were about. And I just, I said, Hey, you just need to stop. I said, <laughs> I know, I know, I, I, said, I know everything there is to know about Pheasants Forever. I need to know what you want to hear from me so I can have this job on Monday. And, and he just kind of laughed and he said, oh, I want you to order breakfast. And I don't know the even, you know, really asked me that many more questions, but I had the job on Monday, and that was that was 18 years ago, and uh, still work here. Um, love it. I I was one of the first four habitat specialists hired, and and then when uh, about 2005, um, they were they were going to develop uh they were going to start a sister branch of the organization called Quail Forever, and man, I perked up pretty fast when I heard that because I was from Southern Illinois. I grew up shooting quail we rarely saw a pheasant because i was kind of south of the pheasant line and um man you know i i talked to them to let me move home and become a regional wildlife biologist for the state of illinois and it was great and i started i started um chapters all over southern illinois and i spread out into the south and southeast portion of the country and you know overall i've started over the years i started nearly 100 quail forever chapters um over the course of about 10 years and Got to become a field manager and supervise the other regional 
wildlife biologists and regional reps and chapter service reps. And then eventually the director of field operations for quail forever when um, Jim Willie, who had that job retired. And, um, and just recently um, we've been growing quail forever so much in the South and Southeast and Midwest that um, we kind of restructured our, <clears throat> our organization and um, divided responsibilities. Um, they can no longer let one person be the director of field operations for quail forever anymore, because we put, we've put about 115 biologists in the quail range. Wow. And it's spread it out from east to west. And um, a lot of them are primarily in the Bob White range, but we got some out west too in uh, New Mexico and Arizona and, and uh, doing work on western quail too. So I was recently just uh, named the director of conservation operations for the south region, which is about 15 states throughout the south and southeast from Virginia to Texas. Um Pretty much and, uh, classic, classic Bob White country. Yep, yep. You're, you're the guy. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, yep, uh, but yeah, living the living the dream, getting to getting to do what I love, and getting to work with a bird that I, I really appreciate and enjoy chasing with my dogs. Well, good because that's you know that, that's why we're all here, and and it it it's got to be kind of nice to kind of narrow your focus a little bit. I, you know, for years, number one, I've said to to your your big boss Howard Vincent, uh, you know, someday, someday in retirement, I'm going to come back and work for you guys for the same reasons I think you were thinking about. <laughs> And then, yeah. uh, of course, Miss Jim Woolley a lot. Um, he yeah. he got me my first speaking gig at a pheasant fe- pheasant fest many oh, yeah. years ago. Um, yeah, he's a great guy. Uh, for the sake of discussion today, we're going to probably focus primarily on Bob Whites. Am I? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's that's your wheelhouse, and that's it really uh, you know, that's the one that has uh, the spotlight most of the time, and and also it's it's where I think we need to focus our 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 thinking process. But before we do that, I mean, when <laughs> it's the same with me, I get this question all the time. You know, you do that all day. Do you actually go out and go hunting after that? Oh so, yeah. So tell me, tell me about your what you do in your free time. <laughs> oh yeah. You know it's funny because I, <clears throat> you know, if you, you know, the old cliche is if you, if you find a job you love, you never work a day in your life. You know, and this is incredibly, you know, close to that. Uh, but we do, you know, I do have to supervise a lot of people, and there's some days it's not fun. You know, but most of the time. <laughs> But most of the time, I'm, I get to put, uh, you know, partnership agreements together with um, people that love our organization, whether it's a state or federal agency, along with chapter donations and private donations. And we piece all that together and we put biologists and habitat specialists on the landscape that are doing technical assistance and habitat work for quail. And it honestly doesn't get old. I mean, it really doesn't. You know, I can't, I got to pull myself away from it at times. But then when I do pull myself away from it, I love to grab a shotgun and my dog and, and go chase birds, you know. And um, I've, I've gotten to see a lot of things, you know, and gotten to chase a lot of birds in places by doing this job that I otherwise wouldn't get to, you know. And, and I'm fortunate for that. And, you know, when I first started out, I think there were only about 25 or 30 people that worked here. And as we go and grow and, and build this program and do more habitat work all over the country. I'm, I'm fortunate to get to meet a lot of people and have a lot of great people work for me and work for a lot of great people and volunteers that, um, on occasion, uh, want to take me out and show me some birds, you know, and, and, and I love it. You know, when it happens, I love seeing new places and I love chasing new coveys of birds, you know, um, home is great, but it's pretty, pretty nice to see the world and go see things you haven't seen before and, and yeah. chase birds you haven't seen you know so yeah. i do i i got a couple of dogs and, and i love it okay so let's get down to it three quick questions for you tim <laughs> before we uh before we decide whether to carry on this conversation yep. any longer <laughs> uh flushers or pointers well it's funny you ask because i have both oh good for you you're gonna you're gonna be okay over and under yeah. or side by side <laughs> I got a, I I got an over and under a couple okay. three of them actually. Okay, <laughs> well that's only two <laughs> questions. I mean, you, you covered the other. Uh, um, and tell us about your dogs. Yeah, so I have a uh, I have a golden retriever, um, Reggie. He's going to be ten years old this year, and uh, he's great. And he's actually uh, out of some stock from my 
my DNR boss in Wisconsin, Brian Benzo, was a wildlife technician up there for over 30 years. And he was he's an incredible guy. He was he was, you know, multiple times technician of the year and he had golden retrievers and I learned to love them because that's what he had and I hunted behind them and it's kind of wild to actually have a dog right now that's out of the stock of one of his dogs. Oh, I bet. And, yeah. and it's, you know, it's pretty wild. He's got a, he's got some pups right now and uh, it's, it's hard not to want one, but I, I got two dogs right now and that's my, that's my limit. I've learned that. Yeah. We <laughs> talked but, earlier before you came on board about the process of um, mm-hmm. getting permission to add a dog to the screen, to the string. And sometimes it's a, a multi-year process around here. Yeah. Um, same here. But yeah, so I have, I have Reggie the Golden Retriever and he's my flushing dog and we hunt a lot of, uh, you know, we hunt waterfowl and we hunt pheasants, you know, and, and, and I, I hunt quail with him too. It's just different. And then, and then I have a, I have an English pointer, um, got her a couple of years ago from my friend Dave Jenkins here in Southern Illinois. And, and she is, she is a muscle with a nose. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 different. it's definitely different. You know, that, that golden retriever is about 85% a human being, you know, yeah, and that dog yeah. is the most social animal you could ever have. And, but, the, but the English pointer is, uh, ooh, it's all, it's, I wouldn't say it's all business, but it's all drive and all drive and nose. You okay. Know? It's, uh, it's, it's different for sure. By the way, you're listening to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden, the host. That's Tim Corrin. He's with Quail Forever. He honchos the, the Southeast quail effort for them down there and um, and doing an excellent job of it. But, you know, I, I wrote down that muscle with a nose. Uh, if it ends up in a magazine article, I write, yeah. Um, yeah, this is all the credit you're going to get for that, by okay, the way. That'll, that'll work. <laughs> um, it's funny because, you know, I hang out primarily with chucker hunters and and all of our dogs are like that but you know you i go all over the country and and there are a lot of dogs that are just not in the shape that our dogs are and it you know we're not we're not guilty of neglect or anything it's just hard to keep a dog in shape like that isn't it oh yeah you know it's 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 funny my my golden now i gotta watch i gotta watch his weight I yeah mean, he'll, oh he'll yeah put weight on and you know like the english pointer i can't i can't put weight on it i mean almost in in the fall it gets really bad just i mean you put a garmin collar on that dog and and it doesn't matter if you're quail hunting fence rows or if you're in the Northwoods grouse hunting or what the covered terrain is that that english that english pointer will run it'll it'll honestly i mean that collar tracks them it'll run 40 50 miles yeah yeah. day of hunting you know and and you can't you, you just honestly you can't keep weight on that dog it's just uh here's it's just a muscle you know but the golden retriever yeah. you you feed him over two cups of food and you, you gotta start measuring it and watch yourself it's okay just different, everybody you know? who needs to deal with it and i do too during the season although we've never put in quite that many miles we're putting in 30 35 well he is, <laughs> yeah, he is. Yeah. <laughs> i i found a couple things the first is egg yolks they're all fat, yep. so uh, to throw those into the pan whenever you can. The other one is, and I love this stuff, I top off Flix food with a powder called Gainer that okay. you can get at elements-nutrition.com. They're not a sponsor or anything. I just, I, I'm like you. I'm desperate. You know, the guy who's yeah. wasting away by the third or fourth week of the season. Yeah. And, um, and this stuff does the job. It's incredible. It's basically, it's powdered fat and uh, yeah but yeah. also some other good stuff in there so there's there's my one tip of the day in fact that should have been a tip for the handle it segment coming up but that's all right um yeah, yeah. so let, let's get down to it you know if if you had to nail it uh to a single state to hunt bob white quail you're the guy i mean you know this stuff inside and out you have secret information you have access and none of us have yeah. you have the uh, the gun that has been blessed by the pope so it never misses uh you've oh, obviously got that. a <laughs> <laughs> where would you go oh man you know i get asked this question a lot and and it's it's honestly hard for me because i have a lot of favorites but you know i think some of the best bob white numbers in the country right now can be found in south georgia yeah um they just are i mean i think you know i saw a quote on facebook the other day from clay sisson he works at tall timbers quail research station or for them and and he said his quote on Facebook was the good old days of quail hunting in Georgia are right now. 
And and that's a bold statement because, you know, you, you constantly hear and see that these numbers are going down for the Bob White, you know, and, and they have gone down over time. But pockets where there is good habitat and good things going on, there are good numbers of birds. And, and where there's good weather and good nesting success, there's a lot of things that play into it. But that South Georgia area right now is, is rocking. I mean, they got a whole lot of things going right for them, and they got a whole lot of birds. Now, the only the only thing about that is 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 access is limited. There is forest service ground. There's wildlife management areas that the state controls. There's quail focal areas. There's there is access. There really is. But some of the you know a, a lot of the best access is private. Um, so you either pay to play or you know it's you got to work your way in there somehow and 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 that's tough because it's like i said it's the hotbed right now i think for the whole country but you know my other my other favorite that i my go-to is the state of kansas mm-hmm. because because they're 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 walking access program that you know the acronym is weha yep. um it it is the measuring stick for the rest of the country you know they got over a million and a half acres of public walk-in access. And, and I love that because I, I live in a state, um, Illinois is 98% privately owned. We have, we have upland habitat areas here, but you have to put in for a lottery system or a quota hunt to get to hunt on one of them. Wow. And if, if you get drawn, you get one day with three of your friends and that's it. And I, and honestly, I haven't been drawn in four years. That's and, that's almost ironic, you know that, you know, cause you you could pull all the strings. I mean, you have strings yeah, of all sorts. Sure, no, I'm I'm sure. being sarcastic. Yeah, I, yeah I, no, I, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, I know what you're saying. like. I do, I do know a lot of people, and I and I and I rarely ask, you know, but I if I'm invited, I absolutely, um, you know, participate. But I, you know, it's um, we we buy as much land as we can as an organization, um, and turn it over to state agencies for public access. We have a uh, we have public access programs that are funded by the farm bill um, that we do, but um, access is very limited where I live and where I'm from. So I, I like to go to Kansas because you can open up your Onyx app or get the Weha public land map. And you don't typically ever have to drive more than four or five miles in any direction without running into a chunk of public land. And to me, that is really great. Like, I just, I love to go out there and just go to different areas every day until I get it out of my system for four or five days. Or that's about all me and the dog can I, handle. I know that. <laughs> in fact, we were talking about that a couple of days ago, and uh, and I was giving some advice to somebody about a, a trip to Montana. But the same holds holds true for Kansas, my favorite state. I'm like you. There's there's so much walk in there, oh, and yeah. we've done some TV shows there and had a great time. Thanks, Wes yeah. Sowards, for your help on that. By the way, um, but you yeah. do got it. You got to allow a rest day in there for the dog, if nothing else. <laughs> Not that we couldn't stand to have a rest day every once in a while, anyhow. But uh, you know, yeah. you do a yeah, long yeah. trip like that, you're tearing your dogs to pieces. Um, yeah, you know, this is it a is. good breaking point. We're going to get down to um, to the brass tacks coming up in mm-hmm. just a moment. But right now, I'm going to give you a quick break. I'm going to uh, pay a few bills, and we're going to have the handle it segment and where you go to find a good bird dog pup coming up in just a moment. Yeah. That's Tim Corin. I'm Scott Linden. This is the Upland Nation podcast. Be right back at you, Tim. All right. Yeah, so the Upland Nation podcast is made possible in part by Dr. Tim's Performance Dog Food. I've been enjoying the heck out of working with Tim Hunt, the founder of DRTIMS.com, on some great informational videos. In fact, there's one out right now on the best protein sources and why they're important and also why fat is where it's at. you got to get the right kind of fats in the right proportions in your dog food if you want peak performance not just on day one but on day four of the season and day 54 of the season it's all about fat take a look at those videos you can't miss them they're everywhere but they're also at uh finebirdhuntingspots.com that's a good place to look for them or on the facebook pages it's all there it's all in the bag drtims.com is where you find more information you get a 30 percent discount on your first order if you use the code upland nation they'll deliver it to your door just like those other guys so take a look at D-R-T-I-M-S. Find a formulation that you like, you think is going to work for your dog, 
and then make sure you use the code Upland Nation and get 30% off your first order. So we're talking around it, we're talking through it. Got to play with that young short hair a few days ago. It prompted a question uh, from a viewer of the TV show. Uh, that's what came to me through the TV show. But anyway, uh, he asks this basic question. Where do you start in finding a good bird dog to buy? So that's the topic for our Handle It segment where all the things I learned the hard way come up so that you don't have to. Of course, you can go on the internet and that's a good place to start. But um, before you uh, actually commit put a deposit down, sign a contract, however that works in your part of the country. Here are a few other things you might want to do just to get a feel for what's out there. If you're not a member of your local dog training club, go out and join. Even if you don't have your dog yet, great place to kind of get a feel for all of it, understand the world of bird hunting and bird dogs, dog training and uh, testing. Attend the meetings, go to the training sessions, help out, of course, wherever you can. That'll get you in touch with the local owners and breeders who, believe me, will have plenty of opinions on who's breeding good dogs. Ask them where they got their dogs. Go to the hunt tests or the field trials if you're so inclined and meet some of the breeder trainers there. Talk to the folks who are organizing those be sensitive. They're all volunteers and it's a really busy day. But ask around. That's a good chance to see these dogs in action and find out who's doing what in that world. And then remember, most national groups have a database uh, with their hunt test or their field trial results. Sometimes you have to dig deep, but sometimes they're real easy to find. So if you're looking for a particular breed and you're looking for a particular breeder, it's all right there in black and white on your electronic page. That's the Handle It segment brought to you in part by HappyJackInc.com where you can find all the dog remedies you need for parasites, dog health, and everything else. HappyJackInc.com. And if I didn't bore you yet, hopefully Tim Corrin is still on the line from Quail Forever. Tim, did I uh, did I put you to sleep there? Nope, nope you did, man. Good. I'm still here. Good. Any of that make any sense to you, or do you just wait until somebody <laughs> hand delivers a puppy on a silver platter? Oh no, you're right. You know my um, I you know I've gotten dogs through all through friends, and I don't know. I I always uh, I like to. I like to kind of make my own assessment of things and then mm -hmm. pick, you know, it's and you know, I'm not saying you can't find great dogs in the internet. I'm sure you can. I just, I kind of like to see things firsthand and get a feel for them and then make a decision, you know, and um, that's what I've always done. And I think a field trial club and I think that absolutely is a place to meet dog people and dog breeders and get to really see a lot of different, uh, variety of animals and uh bloodlines and everything you need to do to to make a really good educated decision there's nothing like boots on the ground or paws on the ground to to help you yeah. in that regard absolutely and and while it may not be your cup of tea you know if it's a you know field trial it's a different you know different vibe than a hunt test or a training day but they all have something to offer if you know what to look for there Tim, you're with Quail Forever. You're you're now in charge of basically the the hotbed of bobwhite quail hunting, that southeastern United States and all of that. But let's yeah. start at the top here. And and this is a question I get all the time, and that's why you and I are talking today. What the heck is this the current state of affairs with bobwhite quail? Population dynamics, uh trending, that sort of thing. Bring us up to speed. Yes, yeah, so, you know, you know, over the last thirty years, they've they've trended downward, and you know, a lot of that's habitat loss and incredibly clean agriculture and lack of management on uh, timber stands. You know, all the things that put sunshine on the ground and and make uh, early successional habitat, which is what they love. You know, and but you know, saying that, I mean, there have been successes out there, and we're making a bunch as an organization. You know, where we put. Um, biologists and habitat specialists on the ground to work with landowners to provide technical assistance, get them enrolled in programs or just help them with management plans to make habitat. Um, you see good numbers of birds. So 
when we have successes like the CP33 program, which is the Bob White Buffers and Field Border program, where we have areas where a lot of those go into enrollment and into the ground, we see rebound or quail numbers. And, you know, I was talking about South Georgia earlier, you know, being a real hot spot, some of the best numbers in the country right now, you know, when, you know, at South Georgia, a lot, there's a lot of quail plantations. There's a lot of management. The, the state has a Bob White Quail Initiative, BQI, in Georgia. It's run by the DNR. That's, that's second to none. And they put a lot of hard work and effort in their quail focal areas and their staff. And um, they're doing a lot of things right. And they're getting a really good response to it. And and they got really great numbers there. And, and then, you know, you move over to the state of Texas. And when they get rainfall and they have good vegetation, they have great numbers, you know. Bird numbers were down there, um, you know, 10 years ago, pretty bad as they had such a yeah. long drought for years, you know, yeah. and then when it rained, when it rained, they had, you know, they had 30 year high numbers for a couple of years in a row because they had that habitat back and, and the birds came with it. And, and that's the thing about quail is they're, they're prolific, you know, they go up and down really quickly, you know, when things are bad, they, they die and the numbers go down, but when they're good, I go up just as fast. So when we see, when we see good weather and we see good habitat, we see good bird numbers. And I guess the, the takeaway for me is that um, we can fix it. You know, it doesn't matter if it's gone down, doesn't even matter what the number of state of affairs is right now. If we do good things, we can have good numbers again. And I, you know, I tell people as much as we're restoring the habitat, we're, we're trying to restore the hope because you know that that'll that can drive it and get people to do more of the right things and it can bring them back to where we where we want them again oh i i can't agree more i i think it's all of those things in more but just for the record a biologist who specializes in this kind of thing let's uh, let's get it straight here mm-hmm. rain brings quail in in the southwest mm-hmm and this, and I guess you know, I got, I'll call Texas the Southwest. Uh, sure. They like to think they are the be all and end all, but there are other states. But what is it about rain? Well, you know, like I went to I went to Arizona this year. I've gone the last two years, and <clears throat> when they get rain in that that desert landscape, if you will, they get they get vegetation. And when they get that vegetation, it, it provides everything that the quail want from <clears throat> everything from cover to, to brooding cover to nesting cover. And they don't really, you know, they don't really need winter cover in that part of the world. So all they need is some rain and some vegetation, and then their numbers go way up. You know, I was, I was out there um, north of Phoenix this year, and the amount of gambles quail were, I mean, it was unbelievable i mean they had record numbers they hadn't they had counts that were higher you know they did bird counts um um in the spring and fall and they had counts that were you know this season this fall the bird count out there was the highest had been in over 20 years and that was because they had some moisture in that part of the world now down in the south end of the state they didn't and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and the merton's numbers weren't good down to um, patagonia and in that yeah, area yeah yeah they, they just you know they struggled but um but the gambles numbers were phenomenal I okay mean, so so phenomenal. so the follow-up question is what was the latitude and longitude there <laughs> Well, no, no, I can no. tell you, kids, I, I don't flew, try that at home. I, I flew in. I flew into Phoenix. Yeah, and I, I got a, I got a rental car, and I went north. I can tell you that. Okay, but thank not you. Very, not, not very far north, and I was on public land. I love it, and and you know it's funny. For years and years on the on my TV show, we've tried to make an Arizona quail show, and and we'll have it all set up. You know, in January we'll have it set up for next January, and in July the guide uh, or the outfitter will call and say no, we did yeah, it never rained don't bother uh, you know and then or yeah. worse we'll say oh to hell with that and we'll just we'll go somewhere else instead and then they'll call and say it rained a lot you should have been here so uh, oh. i i feel but what about the uh, i i can look out this window and and count mm-hmm. a half dozen valley quail as we speak yeah. um sure. can't shoot them or I'd be in sure. big, the, she'd change the locks on the door. But um, 
what about the bug thing? You know, the 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 growth that you're describing, the obviously water dependent, but that also yeah. creates that incredible protein uh, biomass yep. for chicks, doesn't it? Yep. Yeah, and those chicks, they absolutely have to have bugs for the first, you know, three to four weeks of their life. And the reason being is those bugs provide the amino acids that they oh. have to have to survive when they're that young. There's no substitute. Yeah, you know, that's that's why so many vegetarians look so pale and skinny. <laughs> they're not getting the right they're not getting the meat. <laughs> not getting the amino acids. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's kinda like that. But but in all honesty, like those chicks, they they have to have those. And that's why as an organization we've really been tied into the pollinator program because not only is it outstanding for the bees and the butterflies that this world needs and depends on for, you know, they say one in every three or four bites of food is dependent on a pollinator of some type. And, and we got to be doing things that keep them around and keep their numbers good. But for us as an organization, that program, those seed mixes and varieties, the wildflowers in with the native grasses, like they make bugs and it's a really great overlap and habitat creator for, what we're trying to target with pheasant and quail and other wildlife. You know, um, it's just, it's a great bug maker. It's a great brood maker and it, um, it, it makes birds. Uh, I'll never forget, uh, getting in a, getting in the shuttle, I shared a taxi is what it was with, with a gal one, one early morning leaving pheasant fest. Uh, we were he both headed to the airport. So I said, well, what, what were you doing at pheasant fest? And she says, Oh, I'm with, uh, I, I, I thought it was a wildlife federation. I don't remember now, but it was, we were there to talk about pollinators and, yeah. and I thought, what? But we had yeah. a long drive to the airport. So I, I, oh, yeah. she explained it all to me and it was a forehead slapping moment. You know, yeah, oh, yeah. You know, I'm so glad you're involved in that stuff. Plus, it makes the prairie a little prettier too. <laughs> it does. You know, it's when we first got into it. <clears throat> I'll be honest with you. I mean, I was skeptical. You know, I thought, and and you know, we, we hired our first. You know, like being butterfly coordinator or monarch <laughs> coordinator. And I thought, I thought this is crazy. You well, know, that's then, right out of the summer of love. You know, <laughs> dude. <laughs> what are we doing? You know, and then you know, as I as I stuck my head in and began to learn more it really makes a lot of sense and in what you know we need to attract a bigger audience to the things we love to keep the traditions uh, that we love around you know so if we can attract bee and butterfly people and beekeepers and brought you know we we have great relationships with uh illinois department or departments of transportation all around the country not sure just illinois. we yeah. got a great one here but um because they're they're starting to manage their right of ways for monarchs and bees and and it's linear habitat for quail and you know other wildlife and it's um in power companies too you know it's um they're starting they have a lot of right of ways whether it be for power lines or pipelines or around solar panels or whatever it may be um those things are gonna happen and go in the ground and I know there's there's controversy that comes with that but from our standpoint, if it's going into place and there's land there that can be used to create habitat, um, we're all for it, you know. And if you can plant pollinator habitat, which is brood growing bird habitat um, around or underneath or where those things are taking place, when we're all we're all for it because we want as much habitat on the landscape as possible so we can have as many birds as possible. When I was working in politics, um, the phrase politics makes for strange bedfellows was kind of a mm. axiom, you know, and you know, we, we would team up with people you'd think were our arch enemies, uh, but to, for the greater good. Um, mm. Ultimately, though, the team ups were just so disgusting, I got out of that business. But biology makes for strange bedfellows, too, doesn't it? It does. It's, it's crazy, you know, the the amount of partners we have in partnership agreements and all the different varieties of people and partners involved with them is, is, is mind blowing at times. Um, it's just, it's wild how many different people and partners we have right now to, to get the things done that we love. But, but, you know, you, like you said, you look at it and you think, well, they control, you know, a 400 mile strip that may be 300 yards wide but it goes the length of the state yeah uh yep. as a right-of-way 
Yeah, you know, we got we got uh, Route 66, you know, runs through Illinois here, goes from St. Louis to Chicago, basically. And we paired with the Department of Transportation here to create the Habitat Highway. And we did, you know, it equated to thousands of acres by putting pollinator habitat up both sides of that road, the, the length of the state, just like you said. Wow. And that brings back the great, the great Bobby Troop song, Route 66. <laughs> I won't sing it. I promise. I do know the. I know the chord changes. <laughs> uh, man, you just got another what? Four states to go through uh, from uh, from St. Louis to um, to uh, to L.A. Yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. Here, here's another one. Uh, everybody asks this, and um, and let me just paint the picture. Because uh, mm-hmm. I just wrote, I wrote a, an essay on uh, a kind of the history of ringneck pheasants in the United States. Mm-hmm. They were introduced, they were planted, and they're uh, granted they're still planted in many places. But those first plants, ultimately in the right place, worked. Uh, I mean, yes. uh, Judge Denny in Albany, Oregon, put 60 birds out and they survived. And then they came over to my side of the mountains and then they kept going east while other people were putting them in Redfield, South Dakota. But that was a planted bird. My mm-hmm. nemesis, the sons of bitches called chuckers, they were introduced. Mm-hmm. And, they, you know, just like every other bird population, they, they flourish some years, but they've never, never um been native to this country why can't we do that with bob whites well honestly because the the wild genetics you know are are impossible to create in a pen you know and i know that that is controversial statement but honestly if if it if we could figure out a way to make it truly work, we as an organization would be doing everything we could to do more of it. But we have found that the habitat has to be there and the birds have to be wild. And, you know, release birds, you know, on a on an average only have about a 4% survival rate from one year to the next. And that just doesn't that doesn't make good financial sense for us to be sure. promoting or paying for. You I know? get it. And, yeah. And so we focus on the habitat work, but they just, you know, it's, it's funny because, you know, you talked about chuckers and man, you, you hunt those things out in the wild, a wild chucker, you know, it, they're commonly referred to as the red legged devil, you know, because they are, they are just tough. You know, they're, they're smart and they're tough and they're just wily as hell and they'll they'll exhaust you chasing them and but if you go to a game farm and you hunt one that's been raised in a pen it's it's honestly like a like a farm chicken you yeah know? i mean it's, it doesn't it doesn't have any of that in its system and and people that have never hunted them wild out west but they might hunt them at game farms in the midwest you know, they, in their head, they think they're dumb and they're going to go out West and they're going to kill a tailgate full of them. And then they go out there and they get, they, they get their ego handed to them, you know, when they go out and try to chase them, because they will literally wear you out and outsmart you unless you're on top of your game or have experience with it. Yeah. It, and all of that makes sense. That's Tim Corin yeah. of Coil Forever. I'm Scott Linden. You're listening to the Upland Nation podcast. Um, I, I get all of that. Um, and we saw it in we see it in the trout in the salmon world as well it's, you know you yeah. you cannot True. introduce hatchery fish and expect them to uh, be the same in any way yeah. but but somebody was out there trapping and transplanting if you want to call it that yeah. uh, chuckers yeah. and uh, huns for that matter uh, turkeys oh, yeah. and uh, pheasants and taking that wild stock and opening the boxes and turning them loose in another location. Has that ever been attempted with uh, Bob Whites? Yeah. So, um, so the tall, I mentioned tall timbers earlier. Sure, the tall yeah. timbers quail research station is kind of the, the cutting edge, uh, you know, science and research center station, if you will, for Bob White quail. And they have a, a game bird, uh, a wild 
a wild bird translocation program mm -hmm. and, and they, they specialize in it. And I would say out of all the institutions in the country, they are, they are head and shoulders above everybody else at it. And, um, they are just, they've put a lot of years of monitoring and research into figuring out how to get it right. And, and now they specialize in doing that. Um, they primarily do it for, um, private plantations because it is very expensive to do and um, but we are seeing um, we are seeing some states start to take notice um, like there's a there's a project up in New Jersey where tall timbers works with them to trap and translocate wild birds and I think it's it's going pretty good as well as it can go in a state that far north and then right now in the state of Pennsylvania so Bob White quail were extirpated in Pennsylvania, they deemed that they no longer had any in the state, not a single one. And, and that's a, that's a story that's hard for us to swallow and not want to correct. So we currently are working with the Leonard Kenny army depot out there. We have a, we have a habitat team that works on site with the Pennsylvania game commission. And what they're doing is they're going to spend three years and they're going to try to get that habitat on that site as perfect as they can because because if you don't have good enough you know habitat to support a wild population you're not going to just dump one on the ground and have it survive yeah so yeah so they were so they're working on that habitat for three years right now like we're about two years into it and um after year three they're gonna we're gonna they're gonna work with tall timbers or some entity um to to translocate wild birds in there and um and get a population going again in Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania did a similar program with pheasants. Um, yeah, yeah. Our, you know, our, our chapters had areas out there. I think there's eight or 12 areas where they did habitat work for a few years. And then our habitat specialist trapped birds out in South Dakota and transported them across. And that population on those areas um, where they did that has gotten high enough now to where they're actually issuing permits to kids out there to hunt them. I love it, and that is that is a great story in and of itself. I, I'm glad to hear that that effort is being done. Period. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I understand there's the quail and the egg part of it, where you get, you can't just drop them down in a parking lot. You got to have you know you got to have the right stuff, uh, and 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 I also understand it's more complicated than that. Uh, among the other things affecting quail populations or game bird populations in general, Tim. Uh, I see predators, both avian and ground-based predators. But what are the other biggest threats to uh, to a uh, to, to a quail population? Oh, uh, you know, I mean, the big things are, I mean, the first one's lack of habitat, yeah, and then and then weather. You know, it can have a a rough effect on them, good and bad. I said when it's when it's bad, they they go down. When it's good, they go up fast too. But you know, um, the biggest things we see are habitat and weather. Um, we always get the the predator questions, and you know, and I understand that. <clears throat> I understand that you know that people aren't killing predators at the rate they used to when pelts and things were of greater value, and lots of people were trapping and coon hunting and things like that. Um, but honestly, when it comes to predators. Um, you know, I always say, you know, don't shoot them, dilute them, you know, put more habitat on the ground, <laughs> you know, so there's enough for everything because, because I mean, predator, predator control. Um, I don't fault anybody for doing it on their own property. I really don't, but, um, predator control in general, you're just displacing them and they generally can regulate their own population to the carrying capacity of the, of the property. I mean, they'll just, they'll increase their, you know, their brooder litter size, whatever they got to do, you know, they just, they're prolific and, and we don't as an organization spend money on predator right. control just because the minute you quit doing it, the, you know, the second you let up, it goes right back to where it was. It and, does. We, we live know. it here every day with coyotes. You know, you yeah. could shoot all the coyotes within a square mile and then. Yep. They just implode their litter and they're yeah, back to where they were. Exactly, and and move and they move our way. Uh, uh, mountain lions are the same way. You shoot one and two come in. So uh, yeah, and, there, so, and there's a and, there, and there's a balance too. You know, I always try to tell a lot of guys. You know, I have I have trail cam footage of coyotes that are walking by the camera with a raccoon or a possum in their mouth. 
Yeah. You know, it's like, you, know you, shoot, <laughs> you shoot the coyote, the coons go up, and, and honestly, like the raccoons and the possums are egg eaters and nest predators where the coyote's a horrible birder, honestly. <clears throat> not saying he won't eat one. He absolutely will. But if he's killing a you know a dozen possums and raccoons a year, you might not want to be you might not want to be shooting at him, you know. But, well, you but know, it, the, like I said, it's just it's a balance. Speaking you know? of tall timbers and, and then our friends in Texas doing a lot of the same kind of research, they're they they really opened my eyes to some of the other less well known nest robbers, for example, snakes and rats oh. and, and things like that. We never think about those, do we? Oh, yeah, you know, you don't because you don't see them. You know, they, they keep a low profile. But, yeah, there have been a lot of studies done. You know, and like I said, uh, not to keep mentioning top timbers, but they just, they've done a ton of research and monitoring, and they can they can tell you the things that, you know, they're, they're so good at the translocation program because they are analyzing every outside factor and figuring out how to make it work because it is incredibly technical. It's, I mean, it's really easy to screw it up, you know, but they have, they have just keep tweaking that and trying to get it as good as they can but they yeah when i was down there um i've toured that place a number of times they're a really good partner of ours and you know just you know armadillos and cotton rats and black rat snakes and all that stuff you know is 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 robbing nests and eating eggs and you just don't know it because it's it's generally nocturnal yeah and you don't you don't see it out there you know so you don't really realize that a lot of what you think are your main predators aren't your main predators because there's other ones that are getting them before they even hatch. Okay, but we're the, we're the primary. We're the top of the food chain. We're the predator that the quail um, uh, couldn't care less about unless we have a, right. a decent English pointer. Um, so, um, Tim Corn of Quail Forever, you study these birds inside and out. Um, give me a couple quail hunting tips that, um, that I'll keep secret. Nobody else will know them. Yeah. Uh, you know, go to Kansas. Yeah. You know, I don't, uh, you know go, to, go, to, go to Kansas and, you know, I like to, uh, I like to look at the, I like to look at that, um, that Weeha map yeah. or, you know, I use on that a lot. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, it's just, it's just a game changer because you got everything at your fingertips and you can, you can see where the boundaries are and, and you can see where you are and make sure everything's good but what i like to do man is i like to go out there and i like to i like to look at a map and i like to find a drainage an area with some moisture that's got some good linear habitat and it'll have some early successional habitat some weeds is what i'm trying to say there um and i like to find chunks of that that you can't see from the road yeah, you know, I mean, because every, yeah, everybody yeah. wants to do a windshield tour and say, "Oh man, that looks great," and they jump out and they hunt it. But if you can look at those maps and you can find areas that are over a hill or down low that you cannot see from the road, but you can see them on that map, and you'll once you find a couple of good ones, you'll start to know what you're looking for on that map. And then I'll then I'll open that Weha book or that Onyx app, and I will specifically look for that. And if you if you get good at finding that, it's amazing how many more birds are in areas like that than are in the stuff that looks good from the road? You know, I I can't echo that any louder than you just explained it, Tim, but I I will add to it. um, I advise everybody on those walk-in properties to don't park the moment you find the parking place. (laughs) Do do a circle of a recon and find the find the back door a lot of times yeah that that is number one nobody else is going in that way number two you might get a better shot at pardon the pun at at all the stuff that's in there so look for that back door and then one bit of warning and i know this is out west this is a real problem i don't know if you experience it as well with that online mapping program whose name i will not say um the states have to report their walk-in areas every year to those guys before they get on the map for that year and the states are pretty lackluster about staying current on that stuff i i did a couple yep. experiments in oregon and and the you know the stuff that was two years old was what they thought was current so mm-hmm. if you're looking at walking areas just on that app sure cross check it against the up-to-date atlas for that state or or somebody might come out of their come out of their barn with a shotgun loaded with two Mm -hmm. two aught buck wondering what you're doing with their bull in the pasture there 
Yep, you are very correct, you know. Um, and, you know, it's funny. I had a friend <clears throat> who works here, and he we were in South Dakota one time, and, and he was from uh, Minnesota near South Dakota, and he said, we went out, we were hunting public land in South Dakota, and he said, I'll show you a little trick. And he pulls up this big public wildlife area, and he gets out, and he slams the truck door as hard as he can. <laughs> and I'll bet, there were, I'll bet there were 50 birds got up and flew – you know, within a hundred yards of the parking lot, and flew out and land over on the other side of the part. You know, land on the other side of the partial, and then he he drove around to the other side of the property, parked, and then I mean, quietly walked with his dog on a lead about four hundred yards ahead, and tucked in that end of the wildlife area, and smacked a couple of birds within five minutes. Well, now that one was worth listening to the whole other discussion we've been having right there. I love that tip. Well, <laughs> no, this has been a wonderful discussion. I've still got way more to talk about. We'll probably have to pick it up at another time, but uh, you're a wealth of information. Tim Corrin is with Quail Forever. He's now in charge of all the hot states for Bob Whites down there. Um, inside and out. If you're if you're not familiar with Quail Forever, boy, I remember the days when when it you know when it became what it is. Um, and luckily Quail Forever stepped in and filled the void. But uh great organization, great people doing excellent work. Uh we'll do this again because I have just as many more questions to ask you about what you're doing. But in the meanwhile Thanks so much for being a part of the Upland Nation podcast. Absolutely. I really, really appreciate it. You know, and for everybody listening out there, if they just go to quailforever.org and check us out if you haven't haven't before. And there's all kinds of things on there. You can click on where to find a biologist close to you. They provide all their service free of charge. That's what we do. And because of our great partners that help us pay for that program. Um, but check us out. We want to help you help birds and buy a membership if you would. We appreciate the support. There you go. Thanks again. See ya. Bye-bye. Don't you go away because we got a whole lot more to talk about, including a public access strategy in uh, a less commonly regarded pheasant state. How's that for a description without describing something? This part of the Upland Nation podcast brought to you by my friends Manning and Joe Exum at Happy Jack. Learn more about all their products at Happy Jack inc.com you know happy jack was joe's dad's prized beagle everybody wanted to breed their bitch to his stock and it's no wonder he got so happy but um it's flea season and if your dog is unhappy about the scratching and the itching and all of that and you're worried about it and you're also worried about um oh the toxicity of all the stuff that you can buy and put on your dog or in your dog you might consider going to the source and using a happy jack flea beacon non-toxic it's a simple little tray with a light over it that attracts those fleas to the light. They hop in, they get in the tray, they can't get out again. It's a miracle product, highly regarded. I can't make that clear enough. I love mine. I don't need to use them near as much as people in the Midwest and the South, but check out the Happy Jack Flea Beacon, happyjackinc.com. Yeah, you know, uh, this land is your land, or at least a whole bunch of it is, especially as we get out to the west, southwest, the northwest. And you also know that I love South Dakota. They build themselves as the pheasant capital of the world. There's a lot of ringnecks out there, but there are some other places you might investigate if you're sick and tired of the mob scene, or they have a tough year or you're just closer to North Dakota. It's a lot more laid back, which means there aren't near as many, for example, hunting lodges. But I've found over the years that the population there, the folks, especially in the smaller towns, love to have hunters out there. And as I've said before, hunting is economic development in a lot of those towns, especially in a state like North Dakota. Some good things going for it. Number one, they do have a walk-in program that is um, just as good from an administrative standpoint. Maybe not quite as many acres as some other states, but easy to access. 
And if you're so inclined and you feel okay about it, if private land isn't posted, then you don't even need to ask permission to hunt. So it's kind of on the landowner's um, uh, nickel to tell you to stay away if that's what they want. Both of those things together uh, are most prevalent in South Central North Dakota. Good to look at. Get on their website and take a look at the walk-in access, the public land, especially the waterfowl production areas. You know how I feel about those for upland birds as well, all over central North Dakota. And all of that good stuff that makes ducks and geese, like thick cattails and grass surrounding wetlands, often harbor roosters. And if you get on the knobs, the higher land in that country, you never know, you might just jump a sharp-tailed grouse. Whew, well, I'm psyched already. I'm not going that far this fall, but I'm going far enough to get into both of those in similar places, and I hope you are too. Hey, you know, it's time for you to start sharing with me as well. If you've got a spot you think can handle the pressure, give me a generalized Drop me a note at scottlindenoutdoors at gmail.com. Let's share it with some of your fellow hunters, particularly new folks who need a little bit of a boost. They got their own bootstraps. I understand that, but sometimes we can help them pull them up. So drop me a line or private message me at any of the Facebook pages. Yeah, speaking of that kind of thing... This part of the show brought to you by FindBirdHuntingSpots.com. Always new material every week to help you find places to hunt just like that. And I thank you in advance for visiting and for listening today. Thanks, Tim Corrin of Quail Forever for the insights that I doubt you're getting anywhere else, everybody. You want to talk? Check out the Wing Shooting USA and the Upland Nation Facebook pages. Please tell your friends. Please rate us at Apple Podcasts. Thank you in advance for that. And you know they are a part of our lives, a big part. So maybe you agree with author Oren Pamuk, who says dogs do speak, but only to those who know how to listen. Speaking of listening, thanks for doing it. I'm Scott Linden. See you in the field.